This episode is brought to you by Food Delivery Service. Thank you for feeding us when there's no time to cook. Welcome back, everybody, to my favorite queer chemist. I'm your host, Geraldo. And I'm Beck. And today we're so excited to introduce you to this week's guest. We hope that y'all are staying safe and healthy out there. So with that, here's our show. Hello, everybody. Today, we're so excited to introduce you to an amazing chemist. Would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. Hello. Uh, my name is Nick Chiappini. I use he, him pronouns. I am a postdoctoral scholar in Rob Knoll's group at Princeton. So I am originally from New Jersey, rural New Jersey, which actually exists. Um, <laughs> my hometown is most known for being home to America's most dangerous water park. So if you want a good like little factoid, you can (laughs) Google Vernon, New Jersey, and you'll see Action Park. And it's like all sorts of horror stories about things that happened at this water park. Um, Is this still open? Oh, so it's changed ownership three times. um, But the original owners bought it back and now it has a new name, but it's the same park. Oh my god! Um, so, uh, and there's soon to be an HBO documentary about it. So, that, that, so the HBO documentary is supposed to like be called like Class Action Park or something. So, <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. Um, but yeah, I grew up in New Jersey. Uh, I went to Drew University uh, for my undergraduate, which is like a small liberal arts co- college in central New Jersey. And while I was there, I worked with uh, Ryan Henricks doing atmospheric chemistry. So my project there was like looking at photochemical oxidation of like volatile organic compounds on like aerosols and particles like that. And then I did an REU at Harvey Mudd for a summer um, with Dave Vosberg um, doing like some synthesis stuff. And then, yeah, when I was applying to graduate school, I got in a couple places, visited a few places and really fell in love with Stanford. Um, So I ended up going there and working with Justin Dubois. So my research and my grad work was more in the realm of like nitrine uh, chemistry. So CH amination, some azeurdination and stuff like that. Huge shift from atmospheric chemistry, but like it was very much like I had no idea what I wanted to do going into graduate school and Justin's program and like Stanford in general had lots of things I was interested in and I tried nitrine chemistry and I was like, I love this. So I'm going to do this. And then yeah, last October I started as a postdoc with Rob um, at Princeton doing like some cool like PCET and radical coupling chemistry and whatnot. And I've been here for a while, obviously, you know, since COVID it's been like, Oh wow. Mm -hmm. I have net like five months in lab. (laughs) Maybe (laughs) who knows, but yeah, I mean, it was the same with us. We like decided on labs pretty much like right before COVID hit. Mm-hmm. So yeah. then like coming back from the summer, I was like, oh, we've actually only spent two months or so like in this lab and now we have to jump in as permanent members. Oh yeah. It's it's like just wild. I mean like I, I was in the scenario where I, I had like an exciting hit right as COVID hit and then it was just <laughs> like like months of angst waiting to like get back in the lab and like try it. Yeah. Try more stuff with yeah it, same but. I like the last group meeting we had before COVID I was like actually presenting something cool <laughs> after like two two and a half months of like being a rotation student I was like I actually have something exciting to talk about and then left and then bam yeah. yeah everything <laughs> happened yeah. yeah but yeah that's that's my story that's that's how I ended up where I am <laughs> That's nice. And then, so starting from the beginning, can you tell us about your experience as an undergraduate at Drew University and how do you found your way to organic chemistry? 
Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I started at Drew because I did a summer program there uh, my senior year of high school called the New Jersey Governor School in the Sciences. And it's basically like a summer college thing where you can go and try a bunch of different science. And one of the perks of doing it is if you finish the program, like you get like a really nice scholarship for Drew. So I was like, you know, this seems like a really good program. Uh, like my sister still needs to go to college. This is a really practical choice. And then, so at first it was like very much practicality. Like this is like a reasonable choice and like has seems to fit what I want. But like, I really fell in love with it once I was there. Um, I love the department to death. I, I really, really enjoyed my experience. And I went in like knowing I was interested in chemistry, but I hadn't seen organic. And then I fell in love with it when uh, I was taking organic chemistry with Alan Roseanne, who's an emeritus professor now at Drew. Absolutely wonderful man, wears nothing but tweed suits and like gaudy aquamarine jewelry. It's amazing. It's so good. It's so good. And like, he would just like walk into class every day. He was like, who's ready for some chemistry? <laughs> and just like such good energy. And because Drew is a liberal arts college, like their the research groups are smaller and like most areas only have like one or one or maybe two people. And like the more organic focused groups uh, tended to be more in medicinal chemistry. And I was not that interested in that per se. So when I took physical chemistry with my undergraduate advisor, Ryan Henricks, like he was like, look, I know you're really interested in organic and like, I, I can't like offer you like total synthesis or anything like that. But I think there's a lot of really cool opportunities to use like organic stuff in the projects that I work on. So I was just like, I'm totally game. And like, after I took PCHEM with him and then I was just like, okay, I'm going to join an atmospheric lab. And then I went and did it, which was, which was wild. Okay. So um, atmospheric chemistry, like is, it entails a lot of PCAM? Yeah, yeah. So so this mm -hmm. one, so his flavor of atmospheric chemistry is mostly the ways it, it's like using photophysics for the most part. Um, okay. So his is okay. mostly like looking at photo excited oxygen or like photo excited like species on surfaces and seeing how they like oxidize organics. So, okay. So, and like the type of surfaces that we would look at are things called aerosols, which are basically just like the small little particles of sand or sea salt or whatnot. And um, that get kicked up from all sorts of things. And what he was really interested in and like what my project was, was like, how does the composition of whatever the solid is affect what happens to organics that absorb on the surface? So the way that we looked at it was a lot of IR, um, which sounds crazy to any organic chemist that you say like, yeah. oh yeah, I, I use so much IR. Like, wow, it's such a great diagnostic technique. But like, if anything, I like my undergrad experience was just like, yeah, IR gets a really bad rap among organic chemists. You can get so much information from it. And like, mm -hmm. I am an unabashed advocate for IR. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but yeah, like I, I did research all four years at Drew with, mm -hmm. with Ryan and um, he knew I wanted to go to graduate school. Like we, like I didn't really know graduate school, like the ins and outs of it. I knew I wanted to do a PhD, but I didn't know what that meant. And he sort of walked me through that. And he was like, look, if you want to get into like, organic graduate programs like it's probably good for you to do an RU and like he mm -hmm. walked me through that process and everything so he yeah he's like basically been one of my biggest advocates from the jump and like I love him so much yeah um, I think that's I think that's one of the huge benefits of going to a liberal arts school I also went to a small liberal arts school for um, undergrad because the department is so small and because like at least at my school like 
there was only a handful of chemistry majors who ended up going to graduate school every year. Most of them were pre-med. And so if the whole department knew that you wanted to go to graduate school, pretty much the whole department was like behind, like behind you. And then definitely like your PI, like whoever you worked for. So like my PI is, yeah, still remains like one of my like closest mentors and advocates even now. Um, And she just like the the one-on-one mentorship that I got from her was just like incredible don't know if I would have gotten that at you know like a bigger university and stuff so I think like it might not have all the resources and like definitely not all the money and all like the prestige of, mm-hmm. of R1s and everything but that can be one of the big advantages of going to a small school. Yeah I mean one of the big things that both he and like other people at Drew's department were would like drove home with me he, were was that like it's really good to get both experiences. Yeah, it's definitely. Very good to see like what like a smaller school is like, what a larger school is like, what the different yeah. types of programs are like because then you can make a more informed choice about what you want for your career. And, yeah. Like that's mm-hmm. definitely helped with me. Like having seen R1 and having seen PUI, like I know I think PUI is a much better fit for me, like career, yeah. like what I want. So, yeah. but yeah, like all of Drew's department was, were like huge advocates for me, like along the way, which is great. And like, I'm still, I still talk to a lot of them pretty, pretty regularly. Um, but yeah, Beck, like you were saying, like I was one of seven chem majors in my year mm-hmm. and three of us went to graduate school. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then moving on to graduate school, you then went to Stanford. So how was that experience transitioning across the country from where you, you were most comfortable, where you grew up, where you went to college? Um, and then how was your experience there as an LGBTQ plus graduate student? Did you feel oh, yeah. supported from your department, from your lab? Yeah, so I guess uh, I forgot to mention this, but like, yeah, I came out my first year of undergrad. Um, so like, I decided to basically just be out from the get go, like decided like, oh, I was like, I'm gonna be out. And then that just happened. So like, I had worked through a lot of the initial like baby gay stuff in undergraduate. And then like, <laughs> grad school was like, advanced gay procedures. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm familiar yeah. with the process. <laughs> Which is how I would describe that. But I would say like Stanford in general was a very supportive environment and I I feel like the department and Justin as an advisor were like supportive but they were in supportive in like the sense that I'm vaguely supportive I don't know exactly how exactly to help but like I'm here if you need me so it's one of those things where like I would describe it as a supportive environment but there wasn't a lot of like architecture in place that was just like mm-hmm this is specifically for you to help you along this way. It's more just, I support you. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've heard that a lot from various departments, graduate students and postdocs from all sorts of different schools and programs. Is that like, you know, generally like the day-to-day interactions are, are good and supportive and, and whatnot, but like the institutional support, there's no like structures in place to specifically support queer and trans graduate students and postdocs. And I think that people, I think generally have the mindset that if you're supportive on a day-to-day basis, then maybe you don't need structural support, but Mm -hmm. they really go hand in hand um, because it really isn't just like your everyday lab interactions that. Oh yeah. hundred percent. I mean like that, I mean, that's even one of the differences from my undergraduate to graduate school. I mean, like, Ryan, my undergrad advisor, straight man, also like one of the 
most intense advocates I've ever met. Like, I mean, as soon as he found out that I was queer, he went out of his way to like, he was like, I don't have experience as a queer, as a queer scientist. Obviously, like nobody in the department that's a faculty member is. Let me put you in connections with people that I know who are so that you have like somebody who's got shared experiences with you. And like the way he did that was like taking me to ACS and like having me go to the LGBT chemists group, meeting like Benny Chan and Barbara Belmont and like, you know, people who like I learned later, like very big names in like LGBT <laughs> science. But I was just like, oh, wow. Hi. <laughs> um, whereas like Justin was very supportive, but I don't feel like he had the same degree of like comfort with you know taking the next step and like mm -hmm. he wasn't exactly sure where to reach out but like I would never characterize him as not supportive I, I, I yeah I yeah say. and generally Stanford queer grad life there was there's like definitely queer orgs there wasn't like a specific one for chemistry but like my sphere within chemistry was very queer um queer gravity is very real wherever you go <laughs> like queers will just attract each other yeah um, my, within my friend's sphere, it was like extremely queer heavy, I would say. <laughs> but. That's good. Yeah, I think that that happened to us when we got here. And, yeah. and now our queer circle is growing and growing. And we yeah. got incoming queer students and we already yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, they it's, want to look it's, just, it's called, it's queer gravity for a reason. The more like massive queers you have, the mm -hmm. like the more queers you can accrete. So like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, and, and we definitely have talked to like senior grad students in our department. When they got into the department here, they wouldn't see that, they couldn't see that queer environment that we now have at this exact oh. moment. Yeah. And that was like oh, yeah. maybe two years ago, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even between my first year and my fifth year at Stanford, like, I felt like there was definitely more of a visible queer presence, like, as I, mm -hmm. as I, like, progressed through graduate school. I mean, like, obviously, there were queer graduate students, but I wasn't as, like, cognizant or, like, aware, aware mm -hmm. of them or connected with them as much. Yeah. yeah. And we are sure that there, there has been queer people in the department. It's just, like, not people that are very vocal about it and, mm -hmm. and you know, exactly. to yeah. make very visible. Right. Yeah. So then moving forward, you made your way back to New Jersey to Princeton for your postdoc, as you said. Yep. Um, can you tell us about how you, sh you chose Princeton and then what has been your experience so far in this? Yeah, uh, yeah, this sure. Time? I mean, I, I knew, so I knew vaguely that I wanted to learn a new skill set, like for my postdoc. So I was thinking either going like hardcore inorganic for my postdoc or like photochemistry was like the other area that like I was like thinking about. And I decided pretty early on that I wanted to go more the photochemistry route because I was just like, I, I think there's a lot of opportunities here. And I think there's like a lot of very cool people that are working in the area. So like I, there's a lot of knowledge to pull from. And then looking at departments, obviously Princeton is very enriched in photochemistry. Um, and particularly what drew me to Rob in terms of the program was like, I really loved all of his PCET work. And I thought it was like a really interesting use of like the photochemistry where it wasn't just purely oxidation or like pure, purely energy transfer. It was like taking classical PCHEM principles and applying them to like a new transformation, which I thought was really neat. And especially when like I was looking and when I visited with the group, what super duper appealed to me was like, now that Rob was a full professor, the program was branching out like massively. So it wasn't, it wasn't like it was just PCET anymore. There were like all sorts of interesting new research directions going on. And like, 
as soon as like I heard all that and like met the people in the group, I was like, this is where I need to be because in terms of like people are great. The science is awesome and there's so much of it. This is like exactly what I want to learn for like my independent career. So I think, I think that was a big part of it. And then also Rob is just an absolute delight. I love interacting with him so much and like he's incredibly excitable and like we're very similar in terms of like how we think about science in my first meeting with him like when i visited was just visiting we talked science for like three and a half hours just in the office wow. until, wow. until until one of the postdocs was just like hey we were gonna we were gonna take him to lunch i don't know if you forgot about that <laughs> no and he's so supportive and like 100 percent gives me like the freedom to do what I want, which is, which is awesome. Um, that's good. Yeah. That's amazing. I'm glad, I'm glad that it ended up working out and that you found your way to the field of photochem. Cause I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. also a huge fan of that. Yeah. I, I can, I can, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. Although um, I actually do like me and, and my mentor, we're on like, we're the two on the total synthesis project in our lab. We okay. do the least amount of photochem out of everyone in our lab. So my mentor has actually never set up a photochem reaction. Okay. He focuses, oh, so are, are y'all on like the reservoiratrol? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Products? Okay. Yep, yeah. So we gotcha. use um, electrochemistry as like one of our key um, steps for um, in like the synthetic route to our natural products. Um, and then, oh, awesome. Yeah. And then I have recently like reincorporated photochem into um, the synthetic pathway. So look at you. Wow. So I right. have gotten innovation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, my, yeah. my mentor is going to his fifth year, and I'm like, Matt, you need to like, you need to run like at least one photochem reaction while you're here like while you're in one of like the photochem labs yeah mm -hmm. you know no i mean i i totally feel that way i mean like i've set up a bunch of photo reactions like all my reactions are photo reactions but like i still feel kind of fake because i haven't done like stern volmer yet i haven't mm -hmm. done like like you know um actinometry yet like so i definitely need to do those before i leave <laughs> so, <laughs> so i feel like i have like actual cred as like a photochemist yeah um yeah, I like to joke that like even though like my my PhD was like kind of organometallic-y, like I'm very much like a fake organometallic chemist because all the rhodium chemistry I did was like air and water insensitive and like I could do it no glove box, <laughs> no glove box, <laughs> not at all, just wet Ooh. solvent out of the bottle. It was great. <laughs> do I envy you? <laughs> yeah. yeah, like I was incredibly fortunate. Like it was mostly just like my predecessor had run everything with like really rigorously in hydrous conditions. And one day I was just like, I wonder if this is necessary. And then I realized it wasn't. And I was just like, okay, cool. Great. But I wish. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So very, very fortunate. In that yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we've talked briefly on the show before about the differences in support of LGBTQ postdocs compared to graduate students. And We've heard some, from some people that in, in some cases, postdocs get less support, right? Because it's shorter amounts of time that you're spending in this lab and in this department. Um, so what is your opinion on the current state of support that LGBTQ postdocs receive, at least in your department and in, in your own experiences? Yeah, I would say like, there's really not a lot of architecture for postdoctoral support, like for like LGBT postdocs. There, there's not really analogous orgs to like GradQ or like OSTEM for postdocs as much. And it has it definitely felt like it's much more like it relies on my own network to get to know people rather than, you know, I going to like a graduate student event to 
go and meet people. And like, that's fine for some things. Like I'm fine going to like graduate student events to meet people, but it's also kind of like, it'd be nice to have events that are like something that's like, you know, people going through this exact same thing and like the same scenarios and whatnot. The example I have is like, when I first got here, there was like a Halloween party for like postdocs staff and faculty for like STEM departments and it was like queer focused so like me and my friend went to this and like we were like two postdocs and then it was a bunch of physics faculty and like math faculty and I'm just like oh hmm <laughs> this is this is really strange I was like I feel very <laughs> out of place here too <laughs> so yeah that's definitely something that like you know, I wish there was a little bit more of is like a sense of community, but that's just postdoc in general. It's a, it's a lot harder to build a sense of community um, than it is in graduate school. My advice is like for people going into postdocs is like your community is what you make of it. So like I made a huge mm -hmm. effort to reach out and like get to know people in the other groups. And that's definitely helped a lot with having friend groups here and also like having people to chat with because I don't feel isolated now. But like when I started, it was very just like, oh my God, how, I don't know anybody here. How am I going to get to know people? Like <laughs> anxious mm -hmm. queer energy, just like overflowing. <laughs> like that, that was basically like my first few months. <laughs> mm -hmm. So going along with that, is there any ways that you think that these departments or organizations can like, better support LGBTQ plus fellows? Because like you said, you will be able to contact and, and meet people but there are other people that are more introverted and you know might not be very comfortable going yeah. out there yeah yeah no i i would love for there to be you know a wider prevalence of like postdoctoral queer groups um because like there's like the postdoctoral council here which is just kind of it feels a little stodgy and it's just kind of like Hmm, we're talking about very fancy adult things and it's like it's like it's it's just not i don't know it just doesn't have like the same type of social energy no. that like i would like even things like a queer game night like i would be totally down for that um you can start it yeah i i, I absolutely can there you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. but yeah institutionally like i think the things that i would really like to see is like you know more organization that's like postdoc or something that's postdoc focused <laughs> and like also made more of an adoption of like i mean this is true of like all career levels but just like lgbt focused fellowships and and mm -hmm. stuff like that to mm -hmm. help support because one of the things with postdoctoral fellowships is that there's a relatively limited pool i mean nih is like by far the biggest grant contributor and there are some private organizations but outside of that it's comparatively pretty limited mm -hmm. um and i feel like that's a scenario where like as much of a socialist as i am like i feel like it would be like you know okay some rich queer person can start a fellowship fund for like <laughs> queer postdocs and stuff like that that would be yeah. cool but yeah acs if you're listening to this Get yeah. to work. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, like, I, like, I think, like, I, I think that would be a really awesome next extension of like the LGBT symposium that Tessic yeah. uh, has been running, and like, mm -hmm. you know, also like Nogal stops uh, build into that as well. Like, yeah. if there was like a way that ACS could build in support structures through that would be really cool. Yeah, yeah definitely. So switching gears a little bit, what advice would you give to your younger self? And this could be dealing with anything from chemistry, queerness, or anything. I think in terms of chemistry, it would be read more broadly earlier, I guess, is one that like I know is like oft parroted, but like I would definitely agree with that. Like 
you know, when I started out, I would like only read, read like Jax or, or Glet or stuff like that. And honestly, like some of my favorite journals to read now are like, not like, you know, the Jax, the Orglet, like the mm-hmm. nature, not the science. I really love reading like chemistry letters built into the Chemistry Society of Japan. You know, I like those journals because a lot of the times you'll th- see things that you don't expect. And that's, that's one of the things that I really like about it. And personally, I would say one of the things that it took me longer to get that I would like to do is like try and move past the white gay myopia like sooner because I feel Mm. like I got trapped in that like when I was first coming out because it was just kind of like I didn't really have too much queer experience and it was very much just like I'm queer but I'm mostly a scientist and now I'm just like I am queer (laughs) like is very much closer to like how I feel and queer does not mean well off white gay men it means like you know everybody and I think realizing that sooner probably would have like helped me build more connections earlier, I think, and have more like, I guess, informed worldview I, earlier. So mm-hmm. I, I think that's something that I would recommend to myself. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. Cause I, I feel like most of the like pretty well-established queer spaces in this like country and our society are centered on like gay white men like Geraldo and I have seen that in Ann Arbor um which you know prides itself on being like very liberal and and whatnot but a lot of the queer spaces that we enter are very people like us are hardly ever there absolutely Um, and it's not even just like brick and mortar places it's yeah it's organizations yeah it's HRC it's Trevor Project it's like you know organizations that have very great aspects but don't have the diversity of the community reflected in their leadership teams and who right. is like making decisions. Um, right. And it's hard to have an intersectional kind of understanding of queerness yep. if you're not, if you're only surrounded by a homogenous group, right? Mm-hmm. It like, exactly. I think that like, I was lucky enough that one of my first queer circles and queer families that I stepped into were like predominantly trans and non-binary people. And I know that not everybody has that experience and that Mm -hmm. it takes them a little bit longer to fully kind of grasp those different identities and those different backgrounds. But even that space was like still fairly whitewashed. And so it's like something that like we as queer people, we really have to like intentionally seek that out because it's not always going to be the default of queer Mm -hmm. people that we meet in, in everyday life. Absolutely. And I mean, that's true on like all intersections too. I mean, like even the intersections of like disability and queerness, like, you know, so much like in the same way that like white cis gay men like dominate most queer spaces, abled queer queer people like Mm -hmm. dominate most queer spaces as well. Mm -hmm. So like, it's just like finding ways to fold in all different types of intersectionality. One, make the community more accessible and one, make it, and second, make it more equitable because, you know, if the only people that are benefiting are like the people who already have some levels of entrenched privilege, you're not doing it right. Right. Um, Yeah. Definitely. Great. So (laughs) that was a really good discussion. (laughs) That was very insightful, Geraldo. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like I could drone it on for hours about like, you know, like just underwhelming white gay centrists ruining everything. Um, I know. Yeah. And just like, yeah, one of the other things that always very much annoys me too is like once a group has secured privilege, they like 
fall very easily into the traps of like other tools to entrench it. You know, I guess the phenomenon of the gay fiscal conservative who like has achieved monetary power and like now wants to entrench that and doesn't care who they hurt because they are able to marry. Like, oh, oh, there are a few things that like just boil my blood like that. (laughs) Like, oh my God. Um, Okay, that was an assent. Sorry. So switching gears a lot. <laughs> <laughs> a lot. Skirt. Yeah, our, our transitions are like we transition. Who, who no? Yeah, I was no. gonna say I was like I was like you can you'll just do like the little snip and like. <laughs> yeah, we just like we just really like hop all over the place. <laughs> oh no, it's good. That's I mean, okay. it's it's very much like akin with like my brain space, which is like <laughs> highly, highly, highly entropy ridden and like full of chaos. That's why. That's <laughs> yeah, why. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> so, who is your chemistry role model, and why? And you can have more than one if you have multiple. Sure. Yeah. So I was thinking about this question a lot, and like this is definitely one of the ones that I'm always curious when I'm listening to the podcast to think of and. You know, when I was listening listening to Nicholas Ball's episode recently, like his answer very much resonated with me because I feel that there are traits of people that I very much respect and like very much like want to embody, but I don't expect any person to be perfect. And mm-hmm. like, I always think that it can like, it's basically just setting up for disappointment. Like if you, if you try to put somebody on a pedestal, I mean, there are like a lot of aspects of my undergraduate advisor that I absolutely love, but like, I would never say that he's perfect in any way because like Mm -hmm. no person is the traits of of his that I really loved were one. He was incredibly genuine and kind and went out of his way to not only find opportunities for me, but like make sure that I had the tools to succeed at the opportunities. That was huge. I mean, like just looking back, having, a mentor who went out of his way, like to find LGBT centric things and like connect me with that. Like, even though he had like no skin in the game was just, it's just outrageous. I mean, like, mm-hmm. I mean, I just remember being so out. He, he handed me like an ACS pamphlet that he had like circled the queer event. He was like, this looks really cool. And like, I know some people there, you should definitely check this out. And I was like, ah! oh my God. <laughs> um, I think aspects that I really liked from Justin, we're being very, very certain in what you're doing. And like, if you're going to commit to something, commit to it and like follow through and do everything you can to follow through with that. And I think that was one of the best things that I got from him. But I think the trait that I look for most in people and like the trait that I hold in the highest regard is like, do you treat other people with kindness? And like, do you come to the table like wanting to affect positive change in some way? If all that you're doing is being and you feel like you need to be an to succeed in something, you're not doing it the right way. Like there has to be a way to succeed in anything that you do, whether it's science, whether it's politics, whether it's life that should be like, you should be able to succeed without tearing somebody else down. And if you can't do that, you really need to evaluate your own approach to things because it's probably not the best approach. And I think in a lot of ways, yeah, that's very much what I want to do is like, you know, use the tools that I have and the expertise that I have and like things that I've gained across the way to try and make the road easier for somebody else. 
And like, I think that's, I think that's very much like one of my missions as like a future PI is like, I want to do everything I can to make it easier for the next person to come along. That's really sweet. Yeah, I love that. You're going to be such a great PI. Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. Fingers crossed if the job market recovers. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, yeah. We can yeah. do a postdoc there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I probably won't go out for jobs for at least another year or two. Yeah. So, yeah. I yeah. mean, I still have time, so. Yeah, but, definitely. Definitely. But I guess, I guess more broadly, like circling back to the role model question, I mean, there are a lot of people who I've met through Twitter that I absolutely adore and I mm-hmm. love, and I've learned so much through the platform. And what I would say is like people shit on it a lot and there are negative aspects to it, but also it's made it infinitely easier to find like people who get you and yeah. people who are like in like the same situation as you or like you know, just getting to know people like is, is a lot easier and it feels a lot more cordial than sending an email. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I guess that pivots to, you know, the social media question. I know. Yeah. So yeah. Perfect transition. (laughs) Look at you. We're doing our job for us. (laughs) Just lead right into the next one. So where can people find you on social media if they want to connect with you? Yeah, sure. So, um, the thing, the thing I'm definitely most active on is Twitter. Um, mm-hmm. So my Twitter handle is just ND Chiapini. So it's like first initial, second initial, last name. And then uh, my Instagram, uh, which I'm pretty sure is public. I think I'll have to double check, but it's fine. But my Instagram is chemchipchem. Because <laughs> like, I, I really like, I love the Wiley Journal, like trend of being like chem photo chem or uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> chem plastic chem or things like that. <laughs> it just always makes me laugh. Yeah, I, I have a LinkedIn. I'm not really active on it. I need to update it more. It's, yeah, um, I don't know. <laughs> like, I feel like LinkedIn is the new Facebook and like, mm-hmm. I don't like Facebook that much. Yeah. So I massively prefer Twitter. So if you want to reach out to me, definitely reach out on Twitter. Yeah. Awesome. That's great. So, yeah, that was, that was all we had for you. This was awesome. so much fun chatting. I'm glad that we could finally have you on. And mm-hmm. Yes. It was oh, a lot of fun. I was so excited. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Yay. Thank you for do, for agreeing to do this. Of course, yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I had an absolute blast, and I hope Yay. I hope it makes for an entertaining podcast. Oh yeah, no, I, yeah, ha- I had a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well. All right. Alrighty. Bye. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you to everyone that has donated to our Patreon. We really appreciate it. We hope that y'all continue to support us like you've done so far. Remember. Black Lives Matter today and every day. As always, remember to fill out the nomination form on our Twitter if you're interested in being interviewed for the show. You can follow us at MFQC Pod. Take care, everybody, and stay safe. We'll see you next week. Bye. Adios.